All right, well, we're there in Isaiah chapter number 50. And this is our 50th week in the Isaiah series. Can you believe that? And we're going to make it all the way to the end. We've got uh, the book has 66 chapters, and we've been taking a week, uh, a chapter per week. And uh, that's what the sermon this morning was about. You just got to finish. You know, you just got to focus and finish and get to the end. But uh, the chapter tonight is only 11 verses. It's a short chapter, so it won't be very long tonight, Lord willing. We'll just go through and read it and make applications as we go. If you look at verse 1, the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. Now notice what he said. Because we're at the point in the book of Isaiah where people are basically, the children of Israel are basically uh, just upset that the Babylonians are coming. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're going to start complaining and saying that God hath forsaken them, that God has forgotten them. If you look at verse 1, again, notice what he says, Thus saith the Lord. He says, Where is the bill of your mother's divorcement, whom I have put away? He said, Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, You say that I forgot about you. He said, You're saying that I have forsaken you. He said, You're saying that I divorced you or that I sold you to my creditors. He says, Go ahead and prove it. He says, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? Or to which of the creditors is it to whom I have sold? Now, notice what he says, okay? Because here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're trying to blame me. This is God speaking. He's saying, you're trying to blame me and say that I forsook you, that I forgot you, that I left you, that I divorced you, that I sold you. He says, but prove that. Because the, notice what he says at the end of verse 1. He says, behold, for your iniquities, the word iniquities means sin, for your sin have ye sold yourselves. And for your transgressions, the word transgressions means sin. He said, for your transgressions is your mother put away. And here's what he's trying to say. Do not blame God when you are suffering for your own sins and your own faults. See, we like to blame God for everything. And we like to say, well, I don't understand why God's doing this to me. And I don't understand why God's doing that to me. But God says, hey, it is for your transgression. It is for your iniquity. You have sold yourselves. And you are put away because of your own sin. And here's what he's trying to explain to him. There are consequences for sin. And just because we believe that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, and just that because we believe, you know, applying it for New Testament believers, that there's eternal security, that once you're saved, you're always saved, that He'll never leave you, He'll never forsake you, He'll never forget about you. That doesn't mean that there aren't, you know, uh, consequences for sin. Go to First Peter, just real quickly. Keep your finger there in Isaiah 50 and go to First Peter, just real quickly. If you start from the back, you'll go past the book of Revelation, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter. Revelation, Jude, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd uh, John, 1st, 2nd Peter. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Galatians 6, 7. It says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's a promise from God. You will reap what you sow. And here's the idea. If you sow bad things, you'll reap bad things. If you sow good things, you'll reap good things. He goes on to say, he says, He that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. He says, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. And the idea is that when you sow right, when you do right, when you show mercy, when you show grace, when you love others, he says, you'll reap that. But when you sin, and when you lie, and when you steal, and when you cheat, he says, you're going to reap that too, and don't blame God. When you are reaping what you sowed. Are you there in 1 Peter chapter 2? Look at verse 20. Notice what he says, 1 Peter 2, 20. 
He says, for what glory is it? He said, can you really show off? He said, can you, can you really glory in the fact? He says, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye take it patiently? He said, is it really something worth the glory about when you're sitting in prison and you're just taking it, you know, you have a good attitude when you got there because you were drinking and driving? You know what I mean? That's what he's saying. He's saying, for what glory is it when ye be buffeted for your faults? He said, you take it and you take it patiently. He said, when it's your fault that they're taking the house because you got in too much debt, when it's your fault that, you know, you're in the mess that you're in, he said, what glory is it if you take it patiently? But notice what he says, and this is what I want to cue in on for a little bit. He says, but, but if when you do well, he said, when you do right, when you don't cheat, when you don't steal, when you don't lie, he says, but if when you do well, and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. See, we have this idea, when, and, and here's what Isaiah is trying to teach. He's saying, you are suffering for your own sin. He said, I did not put you away. I did not, you know, divorce you as a wife. I did not sell you to the creditors. He said, you are suffering for your own sin, and you're complaining about that. But he says, as Christians and as believers, not only should we suffer patiently for our own sins and when we're in trouble because of the mess that we made, but he says, when you do nothing wrong, when you haven't sinned, and you suffer for it? Look at verse 19, 1 Peter 2, 19. Notice what he says. For this is thankworthy. Now, he's talking about God. Could you imagine doing something that God would thank you for? I mean, don't you have a lot to thank God for? Don't you have a lot to say to God, you know, when you get to heaven, and you're, aren't you going to say thank you to God for salvation and thank you for all the blessings he's given you? But the, the Bible says here, you can do something that's worth God thanking you. Notice what he says. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You say, well, she, she committed adultery and I was faithful. But if you suffer, if you endure grief, suffering wrongfully, the Bible says God will thank you for it. He says, that's acceptable. You say, well, well, he, he did this, and I didn't do, and I was right, and, and he's the one that messed up, and he's the one that went online. or he's the one. Hey, but God says, if you suffer, he said, if you, you did nothing wrong, you said you got a great opportunity there to suffer wrongfully, and God says, I'll thank you for that. Because notice verse 21, for even here unto were you called. Because Christ, see, when you suffer for your own sins, you're just reaping what you sow. But when you suffer and you did nothing wrong, you now become like Christ. Because notice verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. See, Christ did nothing wrong. And we're actually going to see it in, the book, in Isaiah chapter 50. Christ suffered wrongfully. He never sinned. He never did anything worthy of death. But yet he took that punishment and he took that suffering and he took it and God says when you suffer and you've done nothing wrong when you suffer and you've been well behaved when you suffer and you've been trying to do right and live right and of course none of us are perfect but you're trying to walk right and things still happen he says you start becoming like Christ and you follow in his steps go back to Isaiah chapter 50 the apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 you don't have to turn there Philippians 3 he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that's what we want. We say we want to know Christ, and we want to walk with Christ, and we want that power of his resurrection. But he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. See, if you're going to walk with God, you're going to have to suffer like God suffers. 
like Jesus suffered. Go back to Isaiah chapter 50, look at verse 2. So in verse 1 we learned that we're not supposed to blame God when we are suffering because of our own foolishness, because of our own sin. But even when you are suffering and you say, but I didn't do anything and it wasn't me and it wasn't my fault and that's a great place to be. And by the way, that's not a common place to be. Usually when we're suffering it's because we did something wrong. There's not many Jobs, but there are Jobs out there who can honestly say, I have not done anything wrong. I'm not sure why this is happening. But when that happens and you take it patiently, God says, you are like Christ. You are following in his footsteps. But notice, notice verse 2, though. You say, well, I'm not Job, and I'm the guy that's in trouble because of my own sin, and I messed up, and I understand that, and I'm, I'm reaping what I sowed. Look at verse 2. Wherefore, this is God speaking to the nation of Israel. He says, when I came, because here's what he's saying. He's saying, you're accusing me of leaving. He said, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? He said, you're accusing me of like being this bad husband who left, you know, and didn't come back and and put you away. But notice he says says in verse 2, wherefore, when I came, was there no man? He said, well, but here's, here's what he's saying. He's saying, the way I remember is when I showed up, you weren't there. He says, when I called, was there none to answer? He says, is my hands shortened at all that I cannot redeem? He said, or have I no power to deliver? See, here's what you're going to understand. Not only do we have to understand that usually, usually, not always, but usually, it is our fault when we are suffering because of sin, but it is also our fault when we stay in that suffering because of our sin. Because here's what God's saying in verse 2. He says, I came to help. He said, I came and you weren't there. He said, I came home and you weren't there. I called and nobody answered. He said, is my hands shortened at all that it cannot redeem? Have I no power to deliver? Jeremiah 33.3 says, call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. See, God says, as soon as you call unto me, I will answer. He says, you know, 1 John says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all our God says, I'll forgive you. He said, as soon as you need me, I'll be there. But how often do we call on him? And in fact, when he calls on us, he says, you weren't there. He says, not only is it your fault that you are where you are, and that's not everybody, but I will say that's most of us. And you say, well, that's not me. I, I didn't bring this upon myself. And there are people like that. I mean, I, I talk to people, and, and I can always say, this wife, she did nothing wrong in this situation, and this happened to her. But you know what? When you're suffering like that, you get an opportunity to be like Christ because he took suffering that he didn't deserve. But then God says to those of us that aren't the Jobs, he says, well, you can call on me whenever you'd like. He said, I, I'll help you and I'll forgive you and I'll be with you whenever you'd like. Look at verse 3 of Isaiah chapter 50, verse 3. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. But in verse 4, he kind of transitions and he begins to talk about this idea of smart people. And he, he talks about the learned. Look at verse 4. The Lord God have given me the tongue of the learned. All right, so we're going to kind of shift gears here because he begins to talk about something else. And he talks about the tongue of the learned. Now, someone who's learned is someone who's learned a lot, someone who has a lot of knowledge. They're a smart person. And he says, Isaiah saying here, that God gave him the tongue of the learned that I should know. He says that I should know how to speak a word. But I want you to notice these two words after the word word, in season. Here's what it means. I have learned to use my words in a strategic way that at the right time, 
in the right season, I can speak the words to him that is weary. He said, the tongue of the learned is used to help the weary at the right time. Go to Ephesians chapter number 4 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse number 29. Ephesians 4, 29. Notice what he says. Isaiah chapter 50 is so, uh, so short. It's just 11 verses. We're not really following an outline tonight. We're just kind of hitting every verse and making comments. So there's no alliteration for those of you that like to take notes tonight. You just got to take your own notes, all right? Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse number 29. He talks about the tongue of the learned. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Notice what it says. Let. Now the word let there is saying allow. He says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good. Now notice what he says. To the use of edifying. The word edify means to build up. You ever heard the word edifice, you know? In Spanish, the word for building is edificio. That's the idea, is you're building something, you're structuring. In the morning services, we've been talking about rise and build and, uh, and the, you know, building a life that makes a difference. Now, notice what he says. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Here's what he's saying. What comes out of your mouth should come out strategically to help people grow and to be ministered. And the word is grace. The word grace means favor. It means mercy. It means you are uh, giving, because you got to understand this. Remember, for by what? For by grace are you saved, right? Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't pay for it. That's what salvation is, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. But here's what the Bible says. We ought to use our words in a way that we minister grace. And you say, well, Pastor, you understand. He doesn't deserve grace when I talk. Or she doesn't deserve grace. Or or my children, they they don't deserve that. I should come down hard on them. But here's the thing. Our words should be used to minister grace. You say, but they don't deserve it. But that's what grace is. They don't deserve it, but you build them up anyway. They don't deserve it, but you, but you exhort them anyway. They deserve for you to be met, but you go ahead and minister grace. Notice that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Go to Colossians. You're there in Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Look at Colossians chapter 4. You're going to find the consistency in Scripture. Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 6. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse number 6. Notice what he says. You'll, you'll see how it's interesting. He, he repeats basically the same thing. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6. Let your speech be always with what? Grace. Seasoned with salt. Always means all the time. Seasoned with salt. That ye may know, here's the learned, how ye ought to answer every man. See, we need to be very careful about the words that come out of our mouth. We need to be very careful to use our words in a very strategic way. To use our words in a way that they are strategically placed to help build and not tear. To help encourage. So you got to understand, our job is to minister grace through our words always with grace. Go to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter number 15. And I want you to consider the words that come out of your mouth. Especially you soul winners. Those of you that go out soul winning. You got to be very careful about the words that come out of your mouth. Brother Ryan and I were out sewing a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about, about the power of words. 
And I was telling them, I remember when I used to go soul winning, I, I like to use a lot of questions when I go soul winning. And I train our soul winners to use a lot of questions. If you're out soul winning and you're doing all the talking, you're not doing it right. Okay? That's not how Jesus gave the gospel. If you notice Jesus in the gospels, he was having conversations with people. So I like to engage people in conversation. And one thing that I was noticing is, you know, I would go to verses like, you know, uh, for the wages of sin is death. And I would ask people, I'd say, do you know what the word wages means? And I, you know, I was getting kind of some attitude. And not from everybody, but some people were kind of shutting me down. And I was just, and I wasn't trying to be rude or mean. I was trying to give them the gospel. But here's what I realized. I realized when I ask people, do you know what this word means? Not everybody, but a lot of people were thinking that I was like kind of condescending to them or accusing them of like not being smart, you know? Well, of course I know what the word wages means. I mean, who do you think I am, you know? And they weren't saying that, but here, here's the power of words. All I did was change that phrase from, do you know what the word wages means, to, are you familiar with this word wages? So you're saying the exact same thing. Yeah, but the power of words made it so that I never have a problem with that. I don't ask people, do you know what the word righteousness means? I just say, are you familiar with the word righteousness? You familiar with the word grace? You say, well, you're saying the same thing. But the power of words, when used strategically, can make the difference between someone listening to you give the gospel and not. And we must be very careful with our words. Are you there in Proverbs 15? Look at verse 26. Proverbs 15, verse 26. Proverbs 15, 26. Notice what he says. The the thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord, but the words of the pure are pleasant words. The words of the pure are pleasant words. Go to Proverbs 25. Look at verse 11. I love Proverbs 25, 11. Proverbs 25, 11. Notice what he says. You're there in Proverbs 15. Just flip a few pages over to Proverbs 25, 11. Notice what he says. A word, notice what he says, fitly spoken, just right in the, in the right place. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. Now get that, get that verse, you know, get, get an idea. Whenever I read that verse, here's what I think. I think of like a picture of an apple tree, you know, hanging in a wall. That's just a silver picture. Everything's silver. The tree's picture, the, the silver, the grass is silver, the trunk is silver, the branches, the leaves, everything in the picture, the, the sky, the, everything in the picture. Just imagine a, a tree that's silver, but the little apples on the apple tree, they're all gold. Wouldn't that stand out? I mean, wouldn't you walk in a room and see a silver picture and you see these little gold apples, you say, that, that stands out. That's how our words ought to be. They ought to stand out. People ought to remember that when they spoke to you, you spoke with grace, you spoke with mercy, you spoke with love. They were pleasant words. They weren't annoyed. They weren't upset. And let me ask you, you know, how do, how do most of your conversations end? Are they good or bad? Are people constantly offended when you speak to them? Do people try to avoid you? They don't, you say, so-and-so doesn't talk to me anymore. Ever since that one time I sat down and talked, they, they just kind of try to avoid me. Maybe there's a reason for that. Have you ever been told you're offensive? Are your words harsh or pleasant? We all deal with this, but you, you got to understand, as Christians, it is our job to make sure our words are pleasant. Do your words lift or tear down? I found as fundamental Baptist, go, go back to Isaiah chapter 50. Let me give you this, this thought. I, I found that as fundamental Baptists, we kind of put our head in the sand about the subject. Because here's what we like to say. Oh, that person got offended because they can't handle the truth. And that is true sometimes, but I have found that most of the time, people aren't offended because of what we say. They are offended because of how we say it. 
And I've stood up and preached against the sodomites, and I've stood up and preached against birth control and abortion, and I've stood up and preached against, you know, how women ought to dress and how men ought to dress. And I've found for the most part, most people can handle it if you're not a jerk. And you, you say, well, everybody, I never get anybody saved because they just can't handle the truth. Maybe it's not the truth. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your bad attitude. Maybe it's your words not fitly spoken, not seasoned with salt, not careful to minister grace. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures. Of now, don't get me wrong. People get mad all the time and leave our church because of the truth. But I want them to leave because of the truth, not because of my bad attitude. Do you understand that? He talks about the tongue of the learned. A wise man will use his words in a very precise, strategic way. Sometimes people need to leave, and we do use words to try to get them to go. You know what I mean? Go back to Isaiah 50. Look at verse 4. Not only does he talk about the tongue of the learned, but he also talks about the ear of the learned. Notice what he says about the ear of the learned. Isaiah chapter 50. Look at verse 4. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 4. Notice what he says. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. Notice what he says. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. Look at verse 5. The Lord God hath opened mine ear, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away back. Go, go back to Proverbs just real quickly. Proverbs chapter number 1. You're just there, so just get to chapter 1, Proverbs 1. He talks about the tongue of the learned, but he also talks about the ear of the learned. And here's what he says about the ear of that person who is wise, who wants to learn, who wants to get knowledge. Here's what he says. Their ear is not rebellious. Their ear is open. They want to listen. They want to hear. James says this, slow to speak. He says, swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Someone said this, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. He expects you to hear twice as much as you talk. And some of us talk twice as much as we listen. And there is a connection between being learned, learned, wise, smart, and listening and hearing. Are you there in Proverbs chapter 1? Look at verse 1. Proverbs 1. Look at verse 1. Now, the book of Proverbs, you probably are aware that it, the purpose of the book of Proverbs is to teach wisdom. Notice what he says in verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. Verse 2. To know wisdom. He said, here's why I wrote the book of Proverbs. Because I want you to know wisdom and instruction. To perceive the words of understanding. He said, I want you to know wisdom. I want you to know under, uh, instruction. I want you to perceive uh, the words of understanding to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, equity. He says, I want you to get the instruction or the teaching of wisdom, the teaching of justice, the teaching of judgment, the teaching of equity. Verse 4, to give subtlety to the simple. The word subtle means to be uh, perceptive, to be clever. The word simple means, I don't know how else to say it, it just means to be stupid, <laughs> to be dumb. You know, and he says, to give subtlety to the simple, you know, to the, to the slow, to the one who doesn't know, to the young man knowledge and discretion. He says, well, how are you going to do this, Solomon? How are you going to give them wisdom and instruction, understanding? How are you going to give the subtlety to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion? Look at verse 5. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. To understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear 
Hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Let me ask you this. Do you take opportunities to learn? I mean, even, even here when you're at church, do you just come to church and kind of sit down and phase out? Just waiting for it to be done? You know, just sitting there and just... Somebody asked you, what was the sermon about? I don't don't know. I was thinking about my grocery list. I mean, here's the thing, and here's what you got to understand, and it goes back to Isaiah. The reason we are in the place we are in life is because we refuse to learn. You say, my finances are a mess. Do you know that you can learn from other people whose finances aren't a mess and figure out what they do? You homeschool moms, you say, well, I'm not very good at homeschooling. You know how you can read books and learn from other homeschool moms who are succeeding and are doing it well, and you can figure out how to do it better? I mean, you can learn about anything out of the the Word of God, of course, but just I'm talking about just books in general. There is nothing that you cannot learn and get better at. You say, I'm struggling with my health. You can learn how to have better health. You can learn how to exercise. My finances, my marriage, my childhood, whatever it is, you can learn. But here's why we often fail, because we refuse to learn like we were talking about this morning. We're distracted. You're watching your four hours of TV, your three hours of Facebook, your, you know, two hours of Angry Birds or whatever you're playing. When you could be learning, when you could be listening. And I don't know of a church, and I'm not saying that we're the only ones, but I don't know of a church that offers more opportunities for people to learn. I mean, we give you soul winning seminars, homeschool seminars, discipleship classes. We give you so many opportunities. You know, three services a week where we open the Word of God and preach the Bible in heavy doses. And the question for you is, are you learning? Or are you just kind of sitting there and just kind of wasting time? Because he says the ear of the wise will hear instruction. A wise man will hear. Go back to Proverbs chapter 50. Look at verse 6. We're making our way. We're almost there. There's 11 verses. We're up to verse 6. Now in verse 6, we shift gears again a little bit. It's all connected, but there's a little shift there. In verse 6, we actually have a prophecy of the the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. This is actually a prophecy. Isaiah is speaking as if it's happening to him, and it may have happened to Isaiah, but it's a prophecy of what will happen in that pain that the Lord Jesus Christ will go through that he did not deserve. Okay? Keep your finger there in Isaiah chapter 50. Go to Mark 15. Let's just run the references real quick so you can have them for your notes. Mark chapter 15. Look at verse number 15. Mark, Matthew, Mark in the New Testament. Mark chapter 15. Look at verse number 15. Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, okay? So you got Isaiah chapter 50, and you got Mark 15, 15, okay? So go back to Isaiah 50, look at verse 6. Notice what he says. I gave my back to the smiters, okay? Someone who smites is someone who, like, hits you. And he says, I gave my back to the smiters. Flip, flip back to Mark 15, and look at verse number 15. Notice what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Pilate, willing to content the people released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him. That's talking about whipping him on his back to be crucified. So there we see the correlation between I gave my back to the smiters to when he was scourged in Mark 15, 15. Notice, go back to Isaiah. Keep your finger there in Mark Mark 15. Go back to Isaiah chapter 50. Look at verse 6. Okay, notice what he says. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheek to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Notice, it says that they spit in his face. Go back to Mark 15. Look at verse 19. Mark 15 and verse number 19. 
Mark 15, 19. Notice what it says. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. And of course, they're mocking him if you get the context there, okay? Go back to Isaiah 50. Look at verse 6, okay? Let me give you some, uh, another uh, set of references. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters. We saw that in Mark 15, 15. And my cheeks, okay, to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. We saw spitting in Mark 15, 19, all right? But notice how it says in Isaiah 15, verse 6. My cheeks... To them that plucked off the hair, okay? Go to Luke 22. Look at verse number 63. Luke 22. So if, you're, if you have Mark still, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 22. And look at verse number 63. Luke 22 and verse number 63. Notice what it says. Luke 22 and verse 63. And the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him. And when they had blindfolded him, they struck him on the face. Do you see that? That's a reference to the cheeks, being smote on the cheeks. And asked him, saying, prophesy who it is that smote thee. And they're mocking him again. Now keep your finger there and look, okay, because we're going to come right back to it. Go back to Isaiah 50. Let me show you one more thing in verse 6, and we'll move on to verse 7. Notice verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters. We know that he was scourged on his back. And my cheeks to them... That plucked off the hair. We know that he was struck in his face, Luke twenty two sixty four. But notice, the Bible says that they plucked off the hair off of Jesus' face. First of all, what we learn is that Jesus had a beard, okay? These fundamental Baptists all have these rules. You're not allowed to have a beard. Beards are, you know, sinful. Well, Jesus had a beard. And we're told here that not only did he have a beard, but they actually ripped it off his face. And this is actually, that's not recorded for us in the Gospels. Here in this prophecy is the only place we have that, uh, that account. Could you imagine having a beard? Hey, Brother Clint, come up here. Let's, I'm let's, let's give an example now. Could you imagine having a beard and having someone rip the face, rip the hair literally off your face? Did Jesus deserve it? Yet he took it patiently for the, cro- for the suffering that was set before him. He endured it. And, I mean, just the, the torture that he went through. Look at verse 7. Okay, we're going we're gonna to finish up here in a minute. Look at verse 7. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. The word flint means uh, something that's hard, that's unyielding. He said, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Okay? Go back. Did you keep your place in Luke? Go back to Luke, but go to Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51, okay? Because it says that he set his face like a flint, okay? What is that referring to? Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51. Luke 9, 51. Notice what the Bible says. Luke 9, 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. Talking about the fact that he was going to be put to death and he was going to go through all this. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew what was going to happen, and yet he set his face like a flint, unyielding, hard, steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. So there's a cross-reference for you, Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. Okay, look at verse 8, Isaiah 15, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says, all right? We'll try to do this quickly. There's a lot of cross-references. I want to give them to you for your notes. Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 8. That way, when you preach through the book of Isaiah, you already have all the notes, all right? You'll be good to go. Isaiah chapter 50, look at verse 8. Notice what it says. Here is near, he is near that justifieth me. Now, I want you to notice this phrase, okay? Because he says it twice. Look, look at this phrase. Who will contend 
with me. Now, here's what's interesting about that phrase. He just got done telling us that they're going to smite his face. They're going to, they're going to you know, beat him in his back. They're going to rip the beard off his face. He just got done telling us they're going to do all these terrible things to him. And then he says, but who's going to contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is mine adversary? Let him come near to me. Look at verse 9. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Now, let me give you a... Uh, 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 Another cross-reference. Go to Romans chapter 8. Now, this is not, you know, a fulfilled prophecy, but what we see in Isaiah 50 and verse 8, when he says, who will contend with me? And when we see in verse 9, when he says, who is he that shall condemn me? We have a New Testament version of that, which is very well known. Let me show it to you. Romans chapter 8, look at verse number 31, okay? Here's the New Testament version of that same statement. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Notice what the Bible says. Romans eight thirty-one. What shall then? Uh, what shall we then say to these things? Notice what he says: If God be for us, who can be against us? Here's what he's saying. Because he says in, in Isaiah 58, "Who will contend with me?" He says in verse nine, "Who is he that shall condemn me?" Here's what Paul said in the New Testament. He said, "If God be for us, who?" He says, "Who can be against us?" Now, now go back to Isaiah 50, and let me let me give you another cross reference. Here is a quote from Isaiah 50 that's quoted in, in the New Testament. Look at Isaiah 50, verse 9, okay? Behold, the Lord God will help me. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they all shall, make note of this phrase, wax old as a garment. Do you see that? Wax old as a garment, the moth shall eat them up. Now that's quoted in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter number 1. Let's go there just real quickly. We're almost done. Hebrews chapter 1, look at verse number 11. Hebrews chapter number 1 and verse number 11. Hebrews 1, 11. Hebrews 1, 11. Hebrews 1, 11. Notice what the Bible says. Hebrews 1, 11. The Bible says, they shall perish. He's talking about mankind as, you know, in contrast to God, okay? He says, they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth a garment. Do you see that? Here's what he's saying, and I want you to understand, okay? Go, go, to, go to Second Chronicles. Just, I want to give you a couple examples of this, and, and we'll be done. Second Chronicles in the New Testament, you got First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. Remember when we were in, back in in uh, the middle of the book of Isaiah, and we were dealing with those chapters that were a story of Sennacherib and of King Hezekiah. Okay, Second Chronicles thirty-two is taking us back to that time frame. Okay, and I want you to see what the Bible says. Second Chronicles thirty-two. Look at verse one. After these things, and the establishment thereof. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the bad guy, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah, this is the good guy, saw that Sennacherib, the bad guy, was come and that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, skip down to verse number 6. You can read verses 3 to 5. He's talking about the fact that he starts getting ready for war and all that, but let's, let's just for sake of time, look at verse 6, okay? Notice what he says. He's talking about he's getting ready to fight against Sennacherib, verse 6. 
And he set captains of war over the people. So he's getting ready to fight. And gathered them together to him in the streets of the gate of the city. And spake comfortably to them, saying... I want you to notice what he says in verse number 7. Because this kind of brings together this whole idea that Isaiah is bringing up in, in, in chapter 50. He says, be strong and courageous. He says, be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria. Now keep in mind, at this time, the king of Assyria is the world power. They are the most powerful. They have the most money. They have the most elite fighting force on planet Earth at this time. Okay, it's like the United in the time of Isaiah. It's like the United States of America today. All right. Now notice what he says, verse seven: Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him. He said, "Don't be afraid." I know you look out there and you see all their armies, you see all their horses, you see all their weapons, and it's scary. But he says, "Do not be afraid for the multitude that is with them, for there be more with." Us than with him. And here's what the people in Judah would say to King Hezekiah. You're going crazy. What are you talking about? There are not more with us than with them. They've got everything. We've got nothing. But notice what Hezekiah says, verse 8. With him is an arm of flesh. He says, with him is people, is resources is money but that that gets old that passes away that perishes as doth a garment he says with him is an arm of flesh but with us is the lord our god to help us and to fight our battles and the people rested themselves upon the words of hezekiah king of judah and here's what you gotta understand and here's what isaiah is trying to teach he's saying look sometimes you go through stuff and it's hard and he says, Jesus will one day go through, is what Isaiah is saying. Jesus, will, he's going to get beat. He's going to get arrested. He's going to get tortured. They're going to take the beard off his face. He said he's going to go through all these things. But here's the thing. That is, those people doing that, they are temporary. They will perish. He says, but with us? He said, who will contend with me? He, said, he says, where is my adversary? Who is he that shall condemn me? If God be for us, who can be against us? Amen. And do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that God is for you? Do you believe that we're in a spiritual war? Let me give you another example. Go to 2 Kings chapter 6. You're there in 2 Chronicles? Just go back a few pages, 2 Kings chapter number 6. This is found all throughout the Bible. Let me just give you two examples. Both have to do with war, and we'll finish up here in like two minutes. 2 Kings chapter number 6. In, in 2 Kings, you find another story, a different story, but a similar story, and similar statements are made. Let me show them to you just real quickly. We'll be done. 2 Kings chapter number 6, look at verse 8, okay? 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel. Okay, so this is a different bad guy, but it's a bad guy. And took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. Okay, so the bad guy is having a conference with his generals and he's saying, here's where we're going to camp out, verse 9. And the man of God, that's Elisha, the prophet, and the man of God sent unto the king of Israel. That's the good guy. Well, kind of the good guy, not as bad as the king of Syria, saying, beware that thou pass not such a place, for hither the Syrians are come down. So I want you to understand what's going on. The bad, the Assyrians, I'm sorry, the, the Syrians they're, they're saying, we're going to camp out right here, okay? We're going to fight against Israel right here. Elisha, because he's a prophet, because he's a man of God, God is allowing him to know these things. So he says to Israel, hey, don't go down that way. That's where, that's where the Syrians are. Look at verse 10. And the king of Israel sent to the place, which the man of God told him, and warned him of, 
and saved himself there not once nor twice. So this happened two times where Elisha was basically providing intelligence for uh, the king of Israel because he's a prophet and God is allowing him to know the plans of the Syrians. Look at verse 11. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing. And he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he thinks there's a spy in his, in his you know, uh, circle of uh, warriors there, his friends. He says, okay, who's the spy? Why is it that they know where we're going? Why is it that they know every step? Why is it that whenever we do something, they already know who's the spy, who's the Benedict Arnold, who's the one that, you know, the mole that, that's given them their information. Now look at verse 12. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet that is in Israel, telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. He said, there's no spy. It's just the man of God, Elisha. He's telling them. You say it in your bedroom, and he knows what you're saying because God's telling him. Now, you think at this point they would just convert to the God of Israel. You know what I mean? Look at verse 13. And he said, go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, behold, he is in Dothan. Therefore sent he hither horses and chariots and great hosts, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, and host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? Okay, so understand the story. The king of Syria sends his big old army down for one man, Elisha. And when Elisha gets up early in the morning and his servant, his servant says, how shall we do? He said, what are we going to do? He said, look at this. The enemy is surrounding us. Verse 16. And he answered, Elisha, fear not. He said, don't be afraid. For they that be with us are more than they that be with him. Remember Hezekiah said, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God. And Elijah's saying, hey, don't be afraid. Don't get scared. He said, hey, there are actually more with us than there are with him. And the, and the servant of Elijah would say, now, look, well, one, two, I don't, think the, I don't think you're doing the math right. There's thousands of them. There's chariots and horses, and there's two of us. And notice what happens, verse 17. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots, not of flesh, of fire round about Elisha. See, Elisha could see the spiritual. The servant, he saw the arm of flesh. Elisha saw the Lord our God. The servant saw the temporary. Elisha saw the eternal. The servant saw what was physical, but Elisha could see the invisible. And Elisha could see that the angels of God and the chariots of God and the fire of God was with him. And he said, there's more with us than there is with them. Say, Pastor Menes, are you getting afraid as we get closer and closer to the end times? I mean, they're starting to restrict what you can say. They're going to make us vaccinate our kids. And you can't even preach against the sodomites anymore because they're going to throw you in prison. And the tribulation is coming. And aren't you scared? I'm not that scared because all they have is an arm of flesh. We have the Lord our God. I'm not that scared because there's more with us than with them. And when you know that and when you understand that they wax old as doth a garment then you just kind of say, whatever pain I have to go through and whatever suffering I have to go through, and if they're going to rip off the beard that I don't have, it's okay. Because if God before us, 
who can be against us? He said, they just have flesh. Jesus later on would say this. He would say, why are you afraid of, of those that can kill the body? He said, why don't you fear him which can kill both soul and body in hell? See, if you have God on your side, you don't have to worry about the rest. Go back to Isaiah chapter 50. Look at verse 10. We'll finish up. Look at verse 10. Who is among you that feareth the Lord, that obeyeth the voice of his servant, that walketh in darkness and hath no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Because there are more with us than there are with them. Because when God is with us, they can't stand against us.